a reminder that we have our uh, Sunday school meeting, our prep school meeting, correct my terminology, prep school teachers are having a meeting after, uh, after class today at uh, immediately following the second service. Any other announcements? I guess that ought to, that ought to cover it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. So you have the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary to make sure that we are indeed filled with the Spirit and ready to focus on the teaching of the Word and to concentrate. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity in this nation to gather together in freedom to study your Word. We continue to pray for our nation during this time. We pray for our leaders. We pray for political and military leaders that you would give them the wisdom to make good decisions and that you would keep them from uh, making serious mistakes. Father, we also pray for the enemy that they would make mistakes and that we would be able to discover those who are perpetrating these horrible acts against our country, both in terms of the anthrax situation and the attacks on the World Trade Center. Father, we pray that you would help us this morning as we study your word to understand the principles here, that we might be challenged as we come to understand more fully what it means to live on the basis of your grace. Father, we just pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ruth 2, Ruth chapter 2. Now, I said last time that we have to look at Ruth almost in the sense of a drama, like a play. There are various characters. The three major characters are Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And the key person in the book of Ruth is not the, the person for whom it is named, but Naomi. It is the story of how Naomi, who has... As the wife of Elimelech left the land, the place of blessing, the place that God had promised to give Israel, the place where they were told to stay, and gone outside the land in an attempt to solve the problems that they were facing, the problems of famine, the problems of divine discipline, in order to uh, solve the problems of divine discipline on Israel brought on by that famine, they have gone outside the land. They are moved to Moab. And rather than finding prosperity, they found Adversity. Rather than finding blessing, they found cursing. Rather than finding life, they found death. And so she has lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. All that she has left are her two daughters-in-law. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 1, one of those daughters-in-law has turned back to Moab. And Naomi and Ruth continue on their journey home to Bethlehem. And the book of Ruth focuses on how God changes the, transforms the cursing in the life of Naomi into blessing. She comes back empty, but she becomes full by the end of the book. And as a microcosm, that represents the same thing that's happening in the history of Israel at this time. They've been under divine judgment. It's taking place during the period of the judges. They're under divine judgment because of their sin, because of idolatry, because of their failure to take the land under God's mandate to destroy all of the Canaanites in the land. And they constantly go through the the cycles of judgment, cycles of discipline, cycles of where they would confess and turn back to God, and then God would bless them, and then they would go back into uh, 
disobedience again. So that's the cycle in Judges. So in the same sense that God is transforming the cursing in the nation into blessing, he's transforming the cursing in Naomi's life into blessing, and in a greater sense it is a picture of how God transforms the cursing, the judgment of sin on mankind, into blessing through the provision of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross as a substitute for our sins. And it is through the fullness of Naomi that God will provide that Savior because she is in the line of the Savior. Ruth will become the great-grandmother of David who is in the line of the Lord. So that's the backdrop for understanding this. Now, last time, as we looked at the beginning of this chapter, I wanted to remind you of two major doctrines that are taught here. The first is the faith rest drill. This is a perfect and beautiful example of how the faith rest drill operates. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. So you have two spheres of activity. Number one, you have the sphere of activity in the life and thinking of the believer. And the believer is taking God at his word and trusting God, not worrying about, well, how exactly is this going to work out? How is God going to solve the problem? What exactly are the means going to be? But you have the believer who is to trust God and do what God's word says to do. So there we see that trust or trusting God has two activities. There's a passive sense to trust, and there's an active sense to trust. Too often we think the faith rest drills, or sometimes people get the idea that it's just passive. There's a passive and an active sense often. The passive sense is when we rest in God in order to provide the consequences of the results. The active sense is we do what he says to do. For example, we are to give thanks in all things. Now, we may not understand why why something is happening the way it is. We may not understand the dynamics of the suffering or adversity that we're going through at the present time, but we know we're to give thanks. So we relax, we give thanks to God for the situation, and we rest in Him. And in that suffering, we respond by claiming various promises and using various problem-solving techniques. And then in the process, God is working. And as we look back at it, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, we discover that God was directing our paths. And that's the picture that we see at the beginning of chapter 2, where the shift uh, in focus goes from Naomi to Ruth. And in verse 2, Ruth takes the initiative to go out and provide for the sustenance of Naomi. She is going to go out into the fields and operate on the principle explained in Deuteronomy for for the welfare of the uh, widows and poor in the nation to work. I want you to notice a principle there that God clearly has a welfare system established to take care of the widows and the orphans and the poor in the nation. But it is a system that's not simply a handout. It's not a giveaway. It's not, well, you're poor, therefore I'm going to give you a certain amount of money just to take care of things. It, It emphasized responsibility. When you have a welfare system that negates the first divine institution of personal responsibility then rather than promoting a work ethic and responsibility, it destroys a work ethic and responsibility. And the Scriptures clearly recognize that, and that's clear in the Mosaic Law that God had a provision, but it wasn't just a free gift. There was the procedure where the um, destitute person still worked, still fulfilled some responsibility. They had to go out into the fields And they had to glean. They had to go through the fields themselves. The uh, landowner, the farmers, were to apply the law, and they were to leave the corners of the field unharvested so that the poor could come out and harvest for themselves. And so there would be a provision there. Now, the problem is that we're living, operating in a time here in the book of Ruth, in the period of the Judges, which is a time of carnality and incomplete and partial obedience to the law. And there were probably a number of farmers and landowners who weren't applying the law. But Ruth recognizes the principle, and she is going to trust God to provide the field for her where she can glean and find food for her and Naomi. 
So she is trusting God, and she's going to get up that morning, and she's going to go out, and she is going to start looking for a field. It's not unlike somebody looking for a job, I would guess, that uh, how many times. I know I've gone through the process where you have no idea what you're going to find or what's out there. And day in and day out, I think the hardest job in the world is looking for a job, especially if you uh, have been unemployed for some time and, and you're, the bills are piling up and there's no income. Sooner or later, you start getting fairly frustrated. But the responsibility is to continue to get up every day and do the same thing, look for the job, fill out the resume, look through the want ads, whatever it might be, trusting God to provide the opening of the opportunity. Sometimes it happens soon. Sometimes it happens uh, after many, many months, and sometimes uh, uh, there's a tremendous test of faith there if we're really going to continue to trust the God and trust God and persevere. So Ruth gets up and she goes out, and she probably went from one field to another and got turned away because there were various landowners and farmers who were not uh, leaving the corners of the field unharvested. And finally, she just happened. The writer says, emphasizing not that it was by pure luck, but to bring to our attention the fact that there is no just pure chance in the plan of God and that God is the one who's working behind the scenes. And there, there we see Ruth is trusting God and what's happening behind the scenes. God is directing her paths. So we see how God is going to uh, lead and direct her. It's not an overt leading. You don't see God anywhere in the book of Ruth reaching down uh, from heaven and pushing her in one direction or the other. There's no bright, blinding flash. There's no dream. There's no revelation. God doesn't speak out of the heavens and say, okay, Ruth, this is what you need to do. There is no direct revelation. And in many ways, that is comparable to how God leads and directs in the life of the believer today. Many times, God does not have a specific plan or will for the individual. When he does, he gently moves us in that direction while we're trusting him. He's not going to, you know, so often in life we face major decisions and we're trying to decide, to decide what is God's will for my life. And God is not going to speak from heaven. God is not going to uh, give us special revelation through some prophet. God is giving us an opportunity to trust him and apply what we know, and in that process, God directs. God clearly has a sovereign will operating in Ruth's life. And so as Ruth does what she knows to do, which is to go out and move from one farm to the next, God either closes the doors or opens the doors as he is directing her. And so he opens the door and she ends up in this field. One overseer gives her the opportunity to go out and harvest. And it turns out that the field is owned by Boaz, who is a kinsman of the family. A kinsman who can step into the role of the Goel, which we haven't studied yet, which is the role of the kinsman redeemer, one of the key words for redemption in the Old Testament. And this is a picture of redemption, which we will get into in the next chapter. So it turns out, and we know it's going to turn out this way, because the writer gave us a hint in verse 1 of the, of the chapter that Naomi had a kinsman of her husband. He was a man, the text says, of great wealth. He is a, a mighty man. He is a, a man of integrity, a man of substance in the, in the, um, in the town. He is probably wealthy, but it is more, not simply a reference to his material possessions, but it also implies his character. He is a man of integrity, a man of substance in terms of his own uh, uprightness. He is more than simply a man of physical or economic aristocracy. He is a man of spiritual aristocracy. And so God is leading her to the field of Boaz. And there Boaz begins to demonstrate a key principle in this book, and that is the principle of chesed, the principle of faithful love. And therein lies the theme of this entire book, and that is understanding grace. 
The whole book of Ruth is a picture of God's grace. It is God's grace that transforms Naomi's cursing into blessing. It is God's grace that transforms the cursing in Israel into blessing. It is God's grace that transforms the cursing of human sin into the blessing at the cross and the provision of salvation. And so that's what this book pictures, and it's a picture of grace orientation in the life of the believer because both Ruth and Boaz are going to demonstrate their understanding of grace and orientation of grace in contrast to Naomi, who hits the tough adversity, losing her family, losing her sons, uh, losing her husband, and she is not grace-oriented. In fact, she doubts the grace of God. We leave her at the end of chapter 1, and she's bitter. She is questioning God's plan for her life. She is angry with God. And by the end of chapter 2, she is going to start coming around to understand how grace orientation helps solve the problem. That God is still gracious even when we are going through those dark times. Now, as we look at the second chapter, it has an important structure to it. And I've tried to get all of this on this one screen on the overhead. This layout is called a chiasm. I've covered this before. You need to be reminded of it. A chiasm is a structure where you have three or four principles that go in one direction, and then there is a mirror reflection in the other direction. And so it can be charted in outline form like this, where each point is indented A, B, C, and D, and then the, it comes back out. And so that it, when you look at, it, at the structure, it looks like one side of an X, which is the Greek word letter Chi, or key as we were taught to pronounce it, but the old pronunciation was Chi, and they, um, and so it's been called a chiasm. And in a chiasm, the emphasis emphasis is on the center point where everything turns. And so it begins with a brief introduction in the first two verses of, of chapter two, where Ruth tells Naomi of her plans to go out and glean. And then the next episode takes place in verse 3 where Ruth goes out to glean. And then the point C is that Boaz arrives and hears about Ruth and interviews the overseer in verses 4 through 7. And then the focal point is point D, and this is the turning point of the chapter, where Ruth and Boaz meet, and Boaz is chesed, and generosity to Ruth is expressed. And that takes us down to verse 13. So chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, is the turning point. This is the key section of this chapter. And then C prime, which parallels the first C, is that Boaz invites Ruth to join him. See, in the first C, Boaz arrives and hears about Ruth. And he hears that from morning until now that she sat only for a little time, and there's a time reference there. And then in, in uh, verse 14, Boaz invites Ruth to join him and the harvesters for a bountiful meal. So she sits once again, and there's another time reference. So C prime parallels and reflects what happened earlier and expands upon it. In B prime, the next section, uh, verses 15 through 17, Ruth arises and gleans again in Boaz's field. And that parallels what happened earlier in verse 3 when Ruth first came to the field and went out to glean. And then the conclusion, Ruth returns to Naomi. The chapter begins with her telling Naomi she's going to go out. And the chapter concludes with Ruth returning to Naomi and joyfully telling her of all that has transpired during that day. And that is in verses 18 through 23. So the key thing the author wants us to focus on is the events of verses 8 through 13, where there is the turning point and Boaz's chesed and his generosity toward Ruth. And that is the author's point that he wants us to focus on in terms of doctrine for this particular chapter. Now, when we look at verse 8, last time we got down to verse 12, but I won't want to go back and pick up a little review in this section. We look at verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Notice his tenderness there and his familiarity. This is not 
He is not, when he says, my daughter, this is an example of his grace to her, he is not treating her simply as a stranger. He is indicating by his use of the term, my daughter, that he is going to uh, uh, begin a, or adopt a protective stance toward her. Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. In other words, don't keep looking anywhere. You stay here. I'm going to take care of you. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Follow the, in other words, go out and follow them as they go through the field and, and, and reap. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you, so he is going to protect her and provide for her. And then he goes a step further. He says, when you are thirsty, go to the water jars, drink from what the servants draw. Apparently, it was not the normal situation for the gleaners to be able to take advantage of whatever refreshment the landowner brought for those who worked for him and worked in the fields. And then in verse 10 we read, She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And the fact that she is a foreigner emphasizes that she is not a Jew. She is not one of the covenant family of God. She does not have specific privileges under the Mosaic law. And it is a picture of how God's grace extends to the Gentile even in the Old Testament. So in verse 10, we see, too, that she says of Boaz, Why have I found favor? And the Hebrew word there for favor is the word hen, H-E-N. And this is the Hebrew word for grace. And so she recognizes grace when she sees it. She recognizes that she is undeserving of these extra uh, extra details, these extra gifts. She recognizes that it's unmerited. She has no right to this because she is a foreigner. So she understands grace when she sees it, and she recognizes that behind Boaz's action are the actions of God. So it tells us right away that she is oriented to grace, and she is thinking about grace. Now, Boaz's response to her, again, highlights his integrity and his character, and it, again, tells us that he is grace-oriented. Now, remember, integrity is composed of, related to four character qualities in the essence of God. The first is God's righteousness. The second is his justice. His righteousness is the absolute standard of his perfection. The justice is the application of that standard. The third element is his love, which is the expression of his benevolence towards mankind. And this is always expressed to man on the basis of truth. It is these four elements that come together in the integrity of God. So when man has integrity, he is reflecting the standard of God and its application He reflects the expression of God's love towards others, which is grace. God's unmerited favor towards man is the expression of divine love. And he can only develop that because he has based his life on the truth of God's word, because he understands the absolutes in Scripture and is in the process of renovating his thinking. Because operating on grace towards people is not our natural inclination. It goes against everything in the sin nature because the sin nature is oriented primarily towards self-protection and self-absorption. We want to do whatever is right for us and to heck with anybody else. So Boaz's response in verse 11 emphasizes his character. Boaz answered and said to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother, the land of your birth, and came to a people that you did not previously know. So he recognizes the character of Ruth, and he's impressed with her character, and he's not 
just impressed with her physical attributes. I doubt if she looked very good at this particular time. She's been out sweating, harvesting in the field all morning, and she probably did not look her Sunday best. So he is more impressed with her character and everything that that has gone on, and that's exactly the way it should be in any relationship. Now, you and I know, because we know the end of the story, that this is a romance and that Boaz and Ruth are going to end up married, which is a, a very unusual situation for one of Ruth's stature. But it tells us that the essence of any good marriage and any good relation is based on character not on anything else. It's not based on possessions. It's not based on status. It's not based on wealth. The issue here is not physical attractiveness or material attractiveness, but on character. And anybody who gets married without recognizing or being convinced of the character of the other person is going to be in serious, serious trouble. On verse 12, Boaz goes on to recognize the fact that it is the Lord that is behind everything. So he shows a certain amount of spiritual perspicacity because he recognizes, even at this stage, that God is the one working in the details. And he says, May Yahweh reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And last time I pointed out that the wings here is a zoomorphism, that God does not have literal wings, but he is often pictured in Scripture, certain attributes of God are pictured through using animal figures, animal metaphors, in order to teach something about the character or the plan or the procedures of God. And here the reference is, is one that is common and goes back to the Mosaic Law. In Exodus 19.4, God said, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And that is a picture of how the eagle protects her young. And this is further explained in Deuteronomy 32.10 and 11. In Deuteronomy 32.10 we read, He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of a wilderness he encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. And this is talking about God's protection for Israel. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, and literally that's not just stirring up, it has to do with the fluttering of the wings, that as the eagle is training the young to fly, the mother eagle will stand astride the nest and begin to flap her wings in order to get the young to imitate her. And as they do, as she's hovering over the young, they try to flap their wings, and some of them are a little stronger than they think, and they begin to pop out of the nest. And so then she flies down and spreads her wings and catches them on the back of her wings on the pinions. And that's the image that's here of God who spreads his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. And that's the picture of what happened at the Exodus of how God protected and cared for uh, Israel. This is a tremendous picture to use. And those of you who are parents who are actively teaching some of these principles at home to your kids, this is something you could get them to do as some investigation into uh, the, the habits and practices of eagles like this in order to help them understand how God provides and protects for all of his children. So he carries them on his wings. So this is a picture of God's God as our refuge. And that takes us to other passages that remind us of this. For example, Psalm 17, 7 and 8, we read, Wondrously show thy loving kindness. It's related to God's chesed. His protection of the believer is related to his faithful, loyal love. Wondrously show thy loving kindness, thy chesed, O Savior, of those who take refuge at thy right hand from those who rise up against them. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. And for the doctrine of refuge, let's turn for a moment to Psalm 91 to see what the psalmist says about taking refuge in God. Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is a psalm of trust, which is expressing the trust of the psalmist 
for God's protection and provision and care. Begins, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Here it's emphasizing God's sovereignty, that the believer needs to put himself in a position where he is relying upon the protection of God, just as Ruth has done. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, El Elyon in the Hebrew, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And then we see the address of the individual as, they, as he addresses God in terms of his character. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. God is our refuge and our fortress, and he has provided a fortress protection for us, which we call the soul fortress, made up of the problem-solving devices that, that God has given the believer. Now, the problem-solving devices... It was basically a distillation of the basic mechanics that God has given the believer for protection in life. So I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. It begins with the faith rest drill. That's why after confession and the filling of the Holy Spirit, who is the enabler of the Christian life. The Christian life in the church age is a supernatural way of life that can only be lived on a supernatural basis. And so after that, the foundation for everything else in the Christian life is the faith rest drill, is trusting God. My God, in whom I trust, for it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. Notice the imagery that the psalmist uses there with reference to the eagle. He will cover you with his pinions. God is the one who uh, protects us. And under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a and a bulwark, and that refers to his dependability. Faithfulness is another basic characteristic of chesed. We can trust in God because he is faithful. He will always fulfill his promises, and he will always do the same thing yesterday, today, and tomorrow. As a result of understanding God's protection, and remember, it starts with focusing on who God is in terms of his attributes. That's why it's important to know the attributes of God. It's because in times of testing, in times of trouble, in times when we are tempted to be afraid and to worry, especially in uncertain times like those in which we live, it's comforting to just stop and rehearse the attributes of God in our mind. God is sovereign. Well, how does that apply to this situation? If God is sovereign, that means he controls uh, all the circumstances in my life, and this is not something that happened that's outside the control of God. So therefore, there must be a plan, a purpose, a reason for this. And so we can stop and relax and understand that we may not at this moment understand or perceive what God is doing in this process, but God is doing something. He is in control. We can be reminded of a principle like Romans 8.28, for we know all things... God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and advancing in spiritual maturity, then you're a believer who loves God. You are in the process of developing your love. You may not be a mature believer yet, but even an immature believer has a measure of love for God. It may be fairly small and microscopic, but to some degree he understands something about salvation and that God has saved him, and that is the starting point of love. He has some knowledge of God. So we have these principles. We start with the character of God. He's sovereign. He's righteous. He's just. He's love. He's eternal life. That means that if God is eternal and he knows all things, he's always known about every circumstance, every situation in life. He knew about uh, Ruth and Naomi's plight billions and billions of years ago. And if God is love, that means he's made a provision, a loving provision for uh, his children to take care of them. And so you can relax and rest in the Lord's provision that it may not happen in your timing, but it will happen in his timing. So you remind yourselves of God's character, and all of that reminds us of his faithfulness and dependability. Furthermore, it reminds us that evil is under God's control. 
Evil is under God's control. No matter how horrendous the circumstances might be, we know that nothing happens outside of God's control. And as a result of that, we can rest in confidence. That's the expression of trust in verse 5. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day. This is a fantastic promise for people uh, today, there's so much fear and anxiety dominating people around the country. Every day you watch the news, there's more interviews. And this week I must have seen a half a dozen talking to somebody about what their plans were for Thanksgiving or Christmas. Were they going to be flying? And they said, no, I'm not, because there's too much uncertainty, there's too much insecurity, and people just have nothing. They can't trust God anymore. They have no rock upon which to base their, their faith and hope. And so they won't do anything, and that's the wrong response. Those people are actually traitors to the country in some sense because they're basically saying, well, the terrorists have won, and we're going to let them cause fear. And as uh, FDR said so uh, cogently, the one thing we have to fear is fear itself. And whenever we start operating on fear, we're just going to increase the power of fear in our lives, and we've basically given the power of control to someone else or something else. But this should never characterize the believer. In fact, anyone who's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be seizing this opportunity and this time of uncertainty as a great opportunity to demonstrate their confidence in the Lord and their relaxed mental attitude. More people, have, more people were killed in automobile accidents in September than were killed by the uh, terrorists in airplanes on September 11th. So... Um, we can't let things like that cause us to be afraid when God is in control. And he was just as much in control on September 11th as he has been on any other day. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness. And that's a tremendous verse right now for the threat of bioterrorism, whether it's something that was brewed up by some local Maniac, or whether it's something that comes from uh, some foreign terrorist, we can relax. We should not be afraid of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. No matter what happens to others, as a believer, we can relax and continue to march through the adversity calm, knowing that God is in control, and even if it costs us our life, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if it costs us our life, we're just going to be absent from the body face to face with the Lord, where there's no more sorrow, no more tear, no more pain. The old things have passed away, so, so why should we ever give it a second thought? And the reason for this is given, skip down to verse 9, for you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. So this is a promise of protection that God is our refuge. This is the mental attitude of Ruth. Now let's go back to see what is happening with Boaz in Ruth chapter 2. And understanding the fantastic mentality of these two people, how they have taken in doctrine, the level of doctrine that they have assimilated, and how this has affected their mental attitude, in the, especially with Ruth in the midst of this situation. Her response to his grace in verse 13 demonstrates the depth of grace orientation in her life. She says again, I have found grace in your sight, my Lord. For you have not, for you have comforted me, and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Now this is an interesting passage because in the English we have a word translated maidservant that, uh, and that same English translation is used in chapter 3, verse 9. Nevertheless, this is a different word and has a different meaning. So we have to pay attention to the nuances of the Hebrew here. First of all, uh, let's start off with analyzing her statement. She says, I have found favor in your sight. What she says here is a declarative statement that um, should be translated because I have found favor in your sight, or I have found grace in your sight, my Lord, because you have 
comforted me. And the word for comfort is the P-A-O word of Nacham, which means to comfort, to console, and to bring relief. To comfort, to console, and to bring relief. And she recognizes that Boaz is dealing with her in grace. Now, the word grace isn't used here, but she recognizes that he's demonstrating chesed. He is grace-oriented, and grace orientation doesn't stop with just understanding that my relationship with God isn't based on who and what I am, but on who and what He is. Grace orientation continues to extend itself in our relationships with those around us, whether it's family members, husbands, wives, children, parents, whether it's friends, whether it's co-workers, whether it's employers or employees. Grace orientation extends itself into how we treat those around us. So she says, I have found grace in your sight, my Lord, because you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant. Now, we need to come back and look at the word for two things here. First, he has spoken kindly to her. And literally in the Hebrew, it says he has spoken to her heart. He has spoken to her heart. Uh, and that is the New American Standard has translated that idiomatically as spoken kindly. But when you speak to someone's heart, the word lave refers to the core of our person, the core of our being. Here is, a, here is this young girl who has no idea what her sustenance is. She has no idea where, where anything is going to come from, where the next meal is coming from, and she's responsible for taking care of her mother-in-law. There's nothing there, and she's, despite the fact that she's trusting God and relaxed in God, there's still a level of concern. Where's the next meal coming from? Is this going to work out? How is the Lord going to provide? That's still running through her, the core of her thinking. That's a, there's a difference between thinking about that and, and, and worry. She's trusting God, but she's still saying, okay, how's it going to work out? How, how's the Lord going to provide? There's still deep in the soul the sense of, uh, a, a, a sense of, well, how's this going to work out? And when Boaz comes along and tells her this, he speaks to her heart. He speaks to the core concerns of her soul. And she sees in this that God, this man is God's provision to take care of her and Naomi. Now, I want you to notice how she responds. She says, you have spoken to, spoken to the heart of your maidservant. And the word here translated maidservant is not the word that we find in verse, or in verse 9 of chapter 3. Here we find the word shepha. Looks like this in the Hebrew. S-H-I. P-H-A-C-H. It's a guttural C-H at the, at the end. And there are two other synonyms for this word. It has to do with a servant, but it is different from the uh, two other words used for a female servant. One is na'ara. Na'ara simply means a young servant girl. And the emphasis, it comes from the root of na'ar, which means young or youthful, and emphasizes the age of the servant. And then the other word, which is used in verse 9 of chapter 3, is ama, A-M-A-H. And this refers to a, properly a maid servant, a higher standing, a higher social standing, than a shifach. There are several examples from archaeology where the Amah level maidservant who was assigned as a, to a close relationship often to a female member of the household. When that young girl was married, then the Amah went with her. If, uh, that, maid, if that girl uh, proved not to be able to have children, then sometimes the Amah would stand in. And in some cases when uh, the wife died, then the husband took the Amma as his wife. So there's clear attestation in archaeology of Amma maidservants being elevated to the status of a wife, but no examples of a shifach. She, is at the, she uses this term which indicates that she has genuine humility. She is putting herself at the lowest rung of Jewish society at this time. 
there is no hope for her. She, she recognizes that she has no social status, whatever. She's not even uh, in a position of being his shifach. She is completely uh, different. I want you to notice here that her gratitude, she recognizes that she has absolutely no claim whatsoever to his benevolence. That is exactly the position that we need to be in at the moment of salvation. We have no claim to God's favor. We have no claim to God's grace. Everything we have is based on who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It has nothing to do with who and what we are. And that is true humility. And she recognizes that there is nothing in her to, to cause Boaz to treat her in this way. She says, she says, Indeed, you have spoken to the heart of your servant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. She's not like one of his shifach. She is lower than that. She is, has no standing whatsoever. She it doesn't work for him, and she has no claim at all to his kindness. And she recognizes, first of all, that she is totally unworthy. And secondly, we see her here, her gratitude. Gratitude always goes with grace orientation. Two character qualities are essential if you are applying grace orientation. The first is humility, and the second is gratitude. Gratitude is a measure of the believer's advance in the spiritual life. If you have very little gratitude towards God or towards events in your life, even when they are horrible uh, situations of adversity, then you have very little spiritual maturity. Then we see the next interchange of conversation between Boaz and Ruth takes place sometime later. There's a time gap between verse 13 and verse 14. She goes back out into the fields, apparently, and continues to glean. And by verse 14, we come to the mealtime, noontime meal. And at mealtime, Boaz says to her, now she comes in with the other workers because now that they have stopped working, there's nothing there for her to, uh, to glean. And so she comes in hoping that she would find something to eat. Perhaps she had a little something with her or she had some grain that she brought with her that she had just brought from the fields and hoping that she'll get an opportunity when everything, everyone else is done to roast that grain on an open fire. Now, the, the backdrop here is, is still takes place today, I'm told, in Israel. You'll find the workers out in the fields harvesting uh, the grain. And when they stop and take a break, they'll, they'll gather up a lot of the um, whatever's left over and some wood and they'll build a fire. And then they'll take the not-quite-ripe heads of grain from the barley, and they will roast that over the open fire. I guess it's something like popcorn, but not quite. And they'll roast that, and then they will eat it. And you'll see that happening out in the fields even today, and it's, and it's uh, quite tasty, apparently. And this is the background for what's going on. So everybody's sitting around and sort of like roasting marshmallows. They've built this fire, and they're holding out the stalk of grain with the, the, the head of gr- ripe grain at the end, or not quite ripe grain at the end, and they're roasting that. And she's waiting for perhaps an opportunity to be able to roast whatever she's brought with her so that she can have a little sustenance. And yet what she meets here, once again, is an expression of grace. God is supplying for her abundantly. This reminds me of the promises of the, at the end of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul is dealing with the fact that he has been the recipient of God's logistical grace blessing by means of the Philippine church. They have sent a large contribution to him in order to take care of his financial needs while he's in prison. And he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. He's talking about financial circumstances here. He says, not that I'm speaking from poverty, from want, from a lack of. For I have learned to be content. I'm content whether I have a lot or little. That's verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. You know, God supplying our needs does not mean that there aren't going to be times of poverty. There aren't going to be times of hunger. There aren't going to be times of unemployment. 
because there will be. But God provides for the believer in those times so that we know that they are not going to be ultimately destructive. We don't have to worry and cave into anxiety like unbelievers do. Paul says, In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Too often this verse is yanked out of context. When Paul says, I can do all things, the all things he's talking about are living in humble means and living in adversity. The all things refers to the secret of being filled and going hungry. The all things refer to the circumstances of having abundance or suffering need. So when he says, I can do all things, he means I can live in any circumstance, whether it's adversity or prosperity. I can handle any circumstance through Christ who strengthens me. And then he concludes the epistle in Philippians 4.19 by saying, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God is the one who supplies our needs. His bank account is full. And that's, he supplies all our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. He has provided us with every asset, every provision that we need in order to handle any and every circumstance in life. That's called the doctrine of the sufficiency of the grace of God. And both Boaz and Ruth understand that, and Ruth is getting a fantastic object lesson in grace orientation in God's tremendous supply of our need in this episode. In verse 14 we read, At mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here that you may eat of the bread... And dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. Now, vinegar is not, probably not the best translation. The word is chametz, which was a condiment that had a vinegar base, but it was tasty, that was used to moisten up and, and spice up the dry bread. So it was sort of like what we'd spread peanut butter on a piece of bread to give it a little flavor and give a little sustenance to it. And this was something a little different. It had a nice, uh, nice uh, flavor to it. So... Ruth comes up, and she hasn't done anything for her food, and he is supplying for her. She hasn't. She, this is not the grain that she's taken already. He's giving her more grain. He's giving her bread. He is giving her comets. He is going to take care of her and give her more than she would expect. She doesn't uh, eat what she picked. She eats what someone else picked. She doesn't eat what she roasted. She eats what someone else roasted. She is invited to partake of the meal. She doesn't initiate the action. And she is the recipient of God's uh, grace, blessing, and the abundance of that grace. And eating, in the, in the Bible, eating isn't just sitting down and having a meal and getting a little sustenance and then going on. It is a picture of fellowship. It is a picture that, that at mealtime, Boaz offering the food to her shows a sign that he is being, he's going above and beyond the call of duty and being kind and generous to her and providing her more than she needs. He is demonstrating again his chesed, that he is generous that he has compassion for her, and that he is doing whatever he can uh, to help her out. He's going above and beyond the necessity, or above and beyond the necessity of the situation. And this is because he is doctrinally oriented. Grace orientation and doctrinal orientation work together. This is seen from three distinct verses in the Old Testament. Proverbs 22.9. Proverbs 22.9 recognizes the principle that is motivating or that, that Boaz understands. He who is generous will be blessed. This is something that goes with grace orientation. It applies to grace orientation, applies to all aspects of the Christian life. But what comes to mind is the arena of giving. And giving too often... People think of, of tithing in so many church situations, and tithing is just a, a legal requirement of 10%, and that was an Old Testament taxation. But too many churches erroneously have brought that over into the church age. And grace doesn't mean, well, somebody else is going to float the bill. See, too often in grace-oriented churches, when it comes to talking about money and giving, too many people get the idea because we emphasize the fact that it's not a certain amount. It's between you and the Lord. They think, phew, I don't have to give anything. But see, the principle of grace is not 
I can get by with as little as necessary, but generosity and excess, because God gave more than is necessary. And that is should characterize the life of the believer that is grace-oriented. He is generous with his time, generous with his talents, generous with his fortune in supporting the work of the ministry. Boaz also recognizes the principle related to provision for the needy in the Mosaic Law. In Deuteronomy 15:14, we read, You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. So see, this isn't, uh, you shall give to him 10%. You shall give to him. This is the same principle as you find in the New Testament. See, the Old Testament had mandatory giving and free will giving. The mandatory giving was the tithe system, and that took care of the support of the priests and the Levites. It took care of the widows and orphans in terms of a general benevolence fund in the nation. And it took care of, a, of an annual feast that they had to celebrate God's grace in the life of the nation. But here is a passage dealing with the provision on an individual basis for the needy. And the standard is not 10%. The standard is according to how God has blessed you. And God has blessed every one of us in a tremendous manner. So he is to be generous in his giving. That principle always goes with grace giving. Deuteronomy 16.10, Then you shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of free will offering. Notice this goes beyond the 10% tithe in Israel. There were mandatory gifts and there were free will offerings. You're, you will uh, celebrate to God with a tribute of a free will offering of your hand which you shall give just as the Lord your God blesses you. That's the same standard as the New Testament according to how God has blessed the individual believer. So that brings us to the doctrine of grace orientation. The doctrine of grace orientation. Point number one. Definition. To orient means to align our thinking, our speaking, and our actions to the grace policy of God. That's the basic definition. Grace orientation means to align our thinking, speaking, and actions to the grace policy of God. Point number two. Grace means undeserved blessing or unearned favor. That means that our thinking needs to be needs to go through a transformation. We live in a in a country where people pretty much think that you get what you pay for and that if you don't deserve it you don't get it. You have to work for every penny and every dime. Grace orientation emphasizes the undeserved and unmerited aspect of giving and taking care of people means to orient our thinking and our actions to that. And that means generosity. Point number three, the grace policy of God means that God deals with his undeserving creatures not on the basis of who they are or what they have done, but on the basis of who he is and what he has done. Grace policy of God means that God deals with undeserving creatures not on the basis of who they are or what they have done, but on the basis of who he is and what Christ did on the cross. Point number four. At the cross, Jesus Christ solved our greatest problem and provides the believer with every resource and asset he will need to resolve every other problem in life. At the cross, Jesus Christ solved our greatest problem and provides the believer with every resource and asset he will need to resolve every other problem. If Jesus Christ solved the greatest problem we'll ever face at the cross, then he can solve every other problem. So this demonstrates four things. The first is that grace is based on divine integrity. It's based on divine integrity, his righteousness, justice, love, and truth. Grace is based on divine integrity, and grace orientation is based on divine integrity. And second observation, it's not based on the object of grace. Grace is not based on the object of grace. It's not based on the uh, whatever you're going to get out of the situation. It's not based on the attractiveness of the object, same as love. It's not based on anything that that person does. That's why grace orientation is a foundation for impersonal love. If we don't understand that, if we're looking for something in return, if we're looking for somebody to act, respond, behave a certain way, that is not grace orientation. Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for that, for expecting something in return, but that's not what grace is all about. 
The third observation so far is that grace is, is not an attribute of God, but an expression of an attribute of God, simply because attributes are character qualities that exist in God in relationship to the other, in the Godhead in relationship to other members of the Godhead. Grace always has a creature in view because it's unmerited favor. So grace can't be a function of God toward God, God the Father toward God the Son, or God the Son toward God the Holy Spirit. Therefore, grace is an expression of love. And finally, grace goes above and beyond the call of duty. It is excessive. It is bountiful. It is generous. And that leads to the sixth point, that grace is expansive and generous. This is covered in a number of passages in Scripture, and I just want to hit on, on one or two of them. Proverbs 11.25, The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Because this is a principle of wisdom, the way God has built things into the system. It's articulated again in uh, Psalm 112, 9. He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. Uh, Luke 6, 38. Jesus said, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap, for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. This is a general wisdom principle. This is not like the prosperity gospel preachers teach, that if you give ten if you give ten dollars to God, He'll return it a hundredfold, and so start investing your money by giving the church a thousand dollars, and sooner or later God will return it to you a hundredfold, and you'll have a hundred thousand dollars. That's a perversion of the truth. But the truth is that as we demonstrate grace in our lives to the degree we demonstrate generousness and benevolence towards people, it will return to us, maybe not in the same way. Maybe it might go out as money and it might come back as kindness or help or, or some other manifestation, but there is a correlation there. We come down to a couple of other passages that you can look up. We don't have time to cover them this morning. Second uh, Corinthians 8, 1 through 7 talk about the generosity of the churches in Macedonia. In verse 2, Paul says, In a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. They gave till it hurt. They gave what they didn't have. They were, they were generous, even though it hurt them and they had to sacrifice in order to give, in order to take care of uh, other congregations that were in worse shape. Another passage is 2 Corinthians 9, 7 through 11 that deal with giving generously. Verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 9 says, You will be enriched in everything for all liberality. That's generosity. So generosity is to govern the grace orientation of the believer in everything in life. Ruth 2.17, we find out what happens in the afternoon. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, from a study of various passages, we can figure out what an ephah is. According to Ezekiel 45.11, it was equivalent to the measure of a bath and or one-tenth of a homer. Now, the, a homer was the amount of grain a donkey could carry. So this is an extraordinary amount of grain. An ephah of barley is equivalent to about 30 to 50 pounds of barley. Now this one gal's been out there in the fields. Why, why does she have so much? Because Boaz has been extremely generous with her. Notice in verse 14, or, or in verse 15, after she had eaten, she rose to glean, and Boaz commanded his servants, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. And also you shall purposely pull out for her some grain for the bundles, and leave it so that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. See, he's being generous. He's saying not only, not, not only is she supposed to glean in the corners of the fields, but as you're going through, reach into your bundles and pull more out. Just, just leave it there. Leave extra for her. Notice, he, in his grace, he's not giving it to her. What's the principle? The principle is that by just giving it to her, that would, that would violate the law. 
See, he, he's making a wise decision here because the, he, he doesn't know the end of the story like we do. And at this point, all he's doing is taking care of someone who's in poverty, but she has to work for it. Now, he's going to make it easy for her to work for it, but he's not going to violate the principle that the poor still need to work for it. He's not going to just give it to her because that would be a violation of the Mosaic Law and that would also have tremendous ramifications in destroying her own initiative and in destroying um, her responsibility. So she goes and she continues to work and she's picked all this up and she then she manages to haul this 30 to 50 pounds worth of, of barley back uh, home to Naomi. And we find out the results in verse 18. She took it up and went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. I mean, she, Naomi is just in shock here. She would never expect maybe 5, 10 pounds, but to come home with 30, 40, 50 pounds of barley is more than she ever expected. And so she, now Naomi's obviously not dumb. She immediately said, okay, something's going on here behind the scenes. This just doesn't happen. And she starts asking questions, perhaps as only mother-in-laws can ask. Verse 19, her mother-in-law then said to her, where do you glean today and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and she tells her mother-in-law that the man's name was Boaz, and suddenly the light starts to go off in, in Naomi's head, and she starts to get a, a beginning to get a glimmer of how God's grace never really left the scene. God has always dealt with them in Chesed, and the whole procedure of bringing them back to Bethlehem, the timing, everything, is part of God's faithfulness. So she says, Naomi says in verse 20, May he, that is God, be blessed of the Lord who has, uh, may, uh, uh, excuse me, he says, may he, that is Boaz, be blessed of the Lord who, that is God, has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Naomi recognizes that God has not withdrawn his chesed. And she says to the living and to the dead, that's a merism, it's a figure of speech where you take two antonyms like morning and evening or day and night or the heavens and the earth. And by taking these two antonyms in a figure of speech, you're talking about the totality. And she's talking about the totality of her family here, both the living, that is Ruth and Naomi, and the dead, that is Melon, Kilion, and Elimelech. She sees God's graces continuing to them even though they're dead because she's beginning to see that through this, God is going to provide a future for the family. So she recognizes that, that God is working here, and she reveals to Ruth now, the man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. And to understand this concept of Goel and the kinsman relative here, is we, we're out of time, so we'll come back next time to talk about the concept of redemption as it's revealed in the Old Testament and in Ruth. With our heads bowed, and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at your word this morning, to be challenged in the area of grace orientation, that it means more than simply recognizing that we are recipients of your grace and salvation, but it extends into every relationship that we have. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for you. Scripture says that Paul delivered that to the Corinthians what he had received, that Christ died according to the Scriptures, was buried, rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's his summary of the Gospel. It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a matter of your works. It's not a matter of moral reformation or good deeds. It's simply a matter of of your reliance, your faith and trust in Christ alone. Father, we pray for those who are believers already, that as we have come to understand your grace more fully, that this will challenge our own thinking and our own actions. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.